Hi, it's so great to see everyone, to be with you here today and welcome you to Women in the Word. I'm Lynn Kitchens, I'm part of the teaching team. You know, we serve a good God, those songs remind us of that, and he gives us his good word to grow, and I hope we walk away with that thought today, that our hearts are so grateful for the goodness of God, which he displays in the one true gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. And my hope is that after looking at this chapter, our hearts will say, because of the gospel of grace through Christ, I am free. I know true love. And I know I'm in the hands of a merciful and a wonderful God, my merciful father. This was Paul's hope for Timothy this was Paul's hope for the church in Ephesus. You know, just a couple weeks ago, I was with a young, beautiful woman, and she was telling me her testimony and talked about the years that she spent in a church that really burdened the people with great amounts of legalism. They really believed women held little value in God's kingdom, and so going to college was frowned on, and this young woman decided, I'm gonna go to college anyway, and she was shamed and rebuked in her own church. After a long time of just leaving that church, a coworker kept saying, you need to come to Christ Chapel, you need to come to Christ Chapel, and she was so wounded. She came and she sat, she sat up in the balcony for over a year, and she placed herself where she wouldn't have to shake hands with anybody. She said she came early to find that spot where she wouldn't have to stand up and do that. And she said, for the first time in her life, she heard the word grace. And it changed her life. Now she's in leadership in life stage two. She was fed the word of God and she began to understand what grace really was. And you think, how can a group of people call themselves a church and have the people to be willing and living in this kind of bondage and in this kind of darkness. And then we study First Timothy and think, well, Paul's giving us the answer here because this has been going on for over 2,000 years now. This was going on in Paul's day. False teachings were prominent. And think about the danger of that kind of false teaching going out when the church was growing and getting started. You know, I realized from that, there'll always be religious leaders who speak their own words instead of God's words. And those are the very people that want to put the shackles back on us that Jesus Christ died to break off of us. There will always be doctrines that push against the true doctrine. And these are the teachings that would bind us again to lies and confuse us about the love of God and our security in him. Only the true gospel explained in the word of God gives life and gives us love and takes us to the arms of our Father. And so you read this week that Paul has an urgent appeal to Timothy. Guard the gospel of God. When I was a teen, my best friend and I would ride all over town on one bike together. Now, I saw her actually last week, which is such a 
fun thing that we still keep up. So I was asking her to let's think through this story again. She was reminding me that we knew it wasn't cool to be teens on one bike. Riding around. So she said, if we saw another teen anywhere in the horizon, one of us would jump off and kind of walk next to it. You know, like we were real cool. And then they'd get, and I'd hop back on the bike and we'd go off. But there was this one place we were remembering. We remembered riding past Hank's Barn. I've talked about Hank's Barn in the past because that was a part of my childhood. Hank's Barn was an old, giant, decrepit barn in the middle of this brand new subdivision that I lived in. And there was a guard at Hank's Barn. And his duty was to chase off any teens riding by on a bike <laughs> past Hank's Barn. So Nancy and I knew this. And so we'd start pedaling as fast as we could before we got to Hank's barn so we could just zip past it as fast as we could. It didn't matter how fast we were going. That guard would run out, chase us, terrify us, and we, we would be screaming and ride our bike away. Now, the interesting thing is that this guard was a very large rooster. I really think the rooster was scarier than if a man was chasing us around. We would just kind of ride for our lives. The rooster did his duty well. We were not about to hop off our bike and go mess with Hank's barn. The rooster was on guard. So when it comes to guarding the gospel of Jesus Christ, I sort of saw Paul a lot like that rooster. Now, I hope he doesn't know I said that, so when I joined him in heaven, he doesn't say something about it. He wasn't guarding a barn. He was guarding the kingdom of God. He wasn't guarding a barn. He was guarding the church, the people of God. He was alert. He was diligent. He was committed to protecting truth. And so in this chapter, he entreats Timothy, protect the church from false teachers. Protect the true doctrine of God. Look at verse 3 in chapter 1. Paul says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. It seems that earlier when Paul was ministering to the church in Ephesus, he pulled Timothy into a corner and he told him this, protect the true, the true doctrine. And so now in his letter for the second time, he's saying to Timothy, don't leave Ephesus. The church is in danger of false doctrine. The gospel of Jesus Christ is in danger. And I love that Deb talked with you about last week. Paul opens his letter reminding Timothy, our hope is in Christ Jesus. And you gotta silence anyone who says it isn't. Silence those false teachers. Our hope is in Christ Jesus. Silence them for the sake of the gospel and the sake of God's people. And we can tell in this chapter that Paul did that very thing himself before he left the church in Timothy's hands. While he was in Ephesus, you read at the end that he mentions that he had to take Hymenius and Alexander out of the church. Two men that were influencing the church in the wrong direction. Two men who were embracing false doctrine. And Paul's hope was that if I remove them from the church, they'll come to recognize their sin. And they'll stop influencing people. 
So what was the false doctrine influencing the church? Look at verse 4. Paul says, don't devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Okay, I want us to look at the characteristics of the false teaching we saw in these verses. And you noticed, love was not their aim. Love comes along with the true gospel. Love was not their aim. First of all, senseless babbling over useless genealogies and myths. Now, we can't know for certain what all of these are. We can know they were empty of any spiritual value. Nobody was being encouraged by these things. The myths were probably elements of Judaism that the Jews were connecting to salvation. And they were doing that incorrectly. They were putting also man-made Jewish laws, man-made rules that they came up with, man-made traditions that Jesus spoke against They were putting those things above the apostles' teachings. And then what are the genealogies? They could have been false interpretations of Old Testament genealogies. And then they were doing what you and I would call majoring on the minors. Debating the genealogies as if that was really important um, as they interpreted them incorrectly. You know, Paul spoke about this same problem in other churches. Look on your verse sheet at Titus. He's telling the people they're not to be paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Now, we're going to notice each of these characteristics lead into the next characteristic. Okay, the next one is when you're devoted to myths, it's going to lead to speculative intellectualism. I feel very intellectual just saying that. (laughs) Speculative, intellectual, simply put, there were a whole lot of questions being asked with no answers being given. That's what that means. Well, this led to debates and arguments and division. And Paul stops in the middle of these verses and says that the issue of faith in God was not even considered. The real issue. They promoted instead speculations rather than the stewardship of God that is by faith. This was a playground of the pseudo-intellectuals in the church that liked to hear themselves talk and didn't really care what people were hearing. They just liked to hear themselves. So this kind of behavior naturally led to vain discussions. This is aimless speech that has no end. Okay, I'm a grandmother of a two-year-old. We have lots of these kind of discussions. (laughs) Sometimes we know what she's saying, but this is what a lot of her talk sounds like. I'm hiding here, so poignant. I want to see a puppy. By John Thomas, but don't want to see a puppy. (laughs) And we just nod our head. Okay, she's two. These people are adults. This is what their conversations are like. 
They're vain. They accomplish nothing. Believers are not edified and encouraged. Finally, Paul lets us know that all of these characteristics are fed by unbridled pride. These false teachers wanted the kind of prestige that the Jewish rabbis had. They were going to seize this opportunity to teach as if that's who they were. And did they want to sit under the church's spiritual leadership and learn anything first? No. They were without truth. They would boldly stand teaching. Paul says they were confident even in their ignorance, which is kind of humorous if it wasn't so dangerous. I saw this man on an interview on the news the other day. Maybe some of you saw it. And he's some kind of leader. I didn't really catch what that was. And uh, the interviewer said, okay, sir, um, I've got your website page here. And you say here that um, you went to so-and-so college. And the man said, that's right. He said, but I called the college. And you only went part of one semester. And the guy didn't say a word. And he said, and, and you know, also your website says you were in the military but I call the military. They have no record of you. The man, the man I'm thinking, I don't want to be that man. I'd, I'd be running out of that room. He doesn't move. And your website says here you were in this fraternity, but they've never heard of you. This was horrible. And then here's what the man says. Well, I can see this interview is not what I thought it would be. That is his answer to false lies. He says, you know, you just want to discredit me. That's what the media does. And the man says, no, sir, I just want to know the truth. And the man replies, the leader, well, you know, anyone can come in and hack someone's website. And the interviewer said, well, we checked on that too. <laughs> Nobody's hacked your website. Then he said, well, I'm done here. That's it. You media are all the same. And he stood up and the interview was over. You know, what a great example was someone with great confidence in their ignorance. Truth wasn't the issue in his mind. Paul tells us these false teachers didn't even understand what they were teaching. So let's look at verse 8. What were they teaching? Paul says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Okay, so we gotta dissect this a little bit. These verses are about the laws that God gave Moses to guide the children of Israel. And Paul wants him to know as I'm guarding the gospel, I want you to understand I'm not criticizing God's law. I'm guarding the gospel. I'm not criticizing God's law. God's law is good when it's used properly. In this case, false teachers were using God's word, the Old Testament, improperly. Prideful Jews that were unteachable 
were teaching a legalistic heresy that offered salvation by works. They were advocating that circumcision was necessary for salvation. They were advocating that mosaic ceremonies were necessary for salvation. And they were advocating that their own burdensome laws were necessary for salvation. And Paul is saying here, you misunderstood, you are misunderstanding the gospel and the purpose of the law, you false teachers. The law was not made as a means to self-righteousness, but the law was made for a means to self-condemnation to make people realize their sin and their need for a savior. In this letter and in all Paul's letters, he wants to explain the proper way to use God's law. First of all, he says it reflects God's holy will and his righteous standard. Look at Romans 7, 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Secondly, it accomplishes God's purposes of showing sinners their sin. Look at Romans 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yes, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And finally, the law is good because it makes us recognize our need for a savior and a redeemer. redeemer. Romans 10, 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So in those verses we just read, since the law is designed to show people their sinfulness, Paul is telling us in these verses, the law is not for those who've already recognized their sin and their need for Jesus Christ. That's not who the law is for. That person doesn't live under the law. They walk in the spirit. Look at Galatians. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So the law is intended for those who remain unconvinced of their sin. And so Paul does an interesting thing next. He gives an extensive list of examples of these kinds of people that are unconvinced of their sin. And they seem to be intentionally based on the Ten Commandments. I think Paul does that to prove his point that the law exposes sin. So the first three on the list are these. Lawless and disobedience, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane. In this list, these are the people dealing with offenses against God. These cover the first commandments of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath holy. Covers those commandments. The rest of this list deals with offenses against others. Those who kill their fathers and mothers. Disobeys the fifth and sixth commandments. Honor your father and mother and you shall not murder. 
The sexually immoral violate the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery, which can be interpreted to include all kinds of sexual sins. Enslavers or kidnappers violate the eighth commandment. You shall not steal. Liars and perjurers violate the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then Paul finishes this inventory of sinners by including any behavior that's contrary to sound doctrine. Oh yes, like your behavior, false teachers. This is who you are. These are a group of people that are unconvinced of their sin. How does Paul measure what is sound doctrine and what is not sound doctrine? His measuring stick is the message of the gospel of salvation in Christ, the good news. And he defines this gospel as a gospel that reveals the glory of God. And then Paul says, this is what I have been entrusted to guard. And it seems when we read on that as Paul pens those last words, he's just did that list. He just talked about the people unconvinced of their sin. And then he talks about the job God's given him to do. I just think Paul set down that pen and worshiped God right there. Because guess whose name he saw on that list? His own. And now he's thinking and yet, because of the grace of God, I get to be one that promotes the true doctrine. I get to talk about the glories of the grace through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel of grace. Paul first experienced it when he was a Pharisee named Saul. And guess what? It was not keeping the letter of the law that saved Paul. It was the undeserved mercy and forgiveness of Jesus Christ that saved Paul. In fact, it was Jesus himself that pursued Paul, Saul, the Pharisee, as he walked along that road to Damascus wearing a filthy robe of self-righteousness. I know you read his story again. I want to touch briefly on it. You know, as Paul was on his way, as Saul, going to Damascus, he was full of himself, and yet he was full of sin. He was bringing Christians with him. He wanted to have them punished, and from other things we read, we realize he enjoyed watching that. He enjoyed watching people be punished and thrown in prison. He was a man of violence, filled with hatred towards Christians. So at noon, he's making his way down a dusty path. All at once, a great light shone from heaven and blinded him, and Paul fell to the ground. And then this voice reaches his ears. It's the voice of Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting and then Christ instructed Paul to go on to Damascus and wait. And so three days, Paul waited without eating, without drinking, without seeing, waiting to hear what God 
had for him next. So God sent a man to Paul, said to him, God's got mighty plans for you. And as Paul stood up, he was blind no more, physically or spiritually. Something like scales fell from his eyes, and the minute that happened, he began proclaiming salvation through faith alone from that moment on. And so as Paul's about to pen his testimony here, here's the great thing. In his testimony is the true doctrine. Look at verse 12. Paul says, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed with the faith and love in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Okay, so we see three major doctrinal truths in this testimony right here. The first one in the first couple verses, we learn Paul turned away from his self-righteous works to place his faith in the work done by Christ on the cross, and then he became an instrument used by God. Look at Philippians 3. Paul says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The, two, the true doctrine here, we are saved by faith and not by works to become an instrument from God, to be used by him for his service. Okay, in verse 15, we learn Paul was a sinner who received mercy from Jesus Christ. And he's saying here, because that's what Jesus does. He came into the world to save sinners like me. And then Paul says, I'm going to call this statement a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. When Paul uses that kind of language, this is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. He's saying to the churches, this is doctrinal truth. This is gospel truth, and your church needs to be founded on this fact. The true doctrine, Jesus Christ, came into the world to save sinners. Jesus announced this himself. Look at Luke 19. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Okay, finally, in verse 16, we learn that Paul recognized he was an example of a great sinner forgiven because of his belief in Christ for eternal life. Paul's saying, hey, I'm living proof. If I can be saved, anybody can be saved. I'm gonna be an example for people in the past. Don't you know he gave his testimony all the time? Because people could think, whoa, if you could be saved, I could be saved. What a great doctrine. We are forgiven of our sins by our belief in the saving work of Jesus Christ. 
One source said, the ultimate sinner became the ultimate saint. That was Paul. Look at Romans 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And I think again, Paul's just shared this testimony, been reminded of the goodness and the grace of God. I think he stops again and worships God. He can't help it. He loves God. The fact that he got to taste the grace of God on that road to Damascus forever changed his life. He is nothing like the violent, proud, sadistic man he once was walking a path to persecute innocent people. He is blind no more. Look at verse 17, what he says. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God receives the praise and the glory for Paul's salvation. Paul knows he's responsible for none of it. It comes from the hands and the heart of the God who is the king of the ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God. He deserves the honor and the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. You know, I was thinking we should never pat ourselves on the back for keeping a good list of rules. We should never try to receive the honor and the glory and the praise that does not belong to us. That's what false teachers do. It is because of God that we know salvation. And here's the great thing. I love the first song we sang today because it was perfect. You and I are free. Do you realize that? Free from the burdens and the chains of legalism and works and keeping lists that bind us and shackle us and enslave us. We are free to walk in the spirit and let God do the work. So God gets the glory, not us. You know, don't you love singing Amazing Grace? I asked Austin to lead that today with Jessica. And you know a lot of that story. That song was written by John Newton. He was a great sinner. He was a great slave trader. He traveled the seas all over to capture and imprison hundreds of people. Like Paul, he was blind, but when he came to believe in God's gift of grace through his son, he got up out of a dark sea and became a preacher of the gospel of grace. He was blind no more. And this is what he wrote. He wrote his own epitaph. John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had so long labored to destroy. I love that. John Newton's song, Amazing Grace, is Paul's song, and Paul's song is our song, 
and our souls should sing it for the rest of our lives. And when we get in his presence, we can just keep right on singing it. What a wonderful thing to sing. How sweet the sound, the grace of God that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. Now I'm found. I was blind. Now I see. Okay, Paul has to get back to business. Let's look at verse 18. He has an exhortation to Timothy, and I want us to think about ourselves like Timothy. This is also for us. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. I think Paul is saying, Timothy, look in the mirror, look at yourself. Do you recall the time when a group of men gathered around you, maybe more than once, and prayed for you and spoke over you the words of God? And these words affirmed in your life that God had called you to lead his sheep. It reminded me of uh, when my daughter was a senior in high school. She was awarded a college scholarship called the Esther Award, along with senior girls from other schools. And this was a group of godly women that I love. They got together and said, why do only smart people get awards? What about people that decide to put their Christian faith seriously, take it seriously throughout high school? And so they formed this scholarship and honored these girls in that way. And then they invited them all to a dinner and the families were there. And I will never forget the moment that uh, my daughter got to walk into the room and that group of women went and ran over to her, surrounded her, put their hands on her, and began praying over her. They were so excited, and it was like they were giving her a mandate for her spiritual future. They told her, go to college and honor God. Keep honoring God. We're going to pray right now that that happens in your life. It was the best thing. And my daughter told me later, She felt the blessing of God on her, and she felt the motivation from these women to live for him. And to a much higher degree, Paul is reminding Timothy here of a similar moment where he says, remember when the group of men gather around you, put their arms over you, and prophesied the words of God over you? Part of your calling, Timothy, is to guard the church from lies and people that lie. So Paul kind of returns here in his exhortation and he uses a military term. Some Bibles say it differently. He says, Timothy, wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight. Defend the true doctrine. Protect the church from these teachers and false doctrine. And here's the reality, everyone. This is an exhortation for us. This is our job as well. We belong to God's church. We protect God's truth. That's what he's called us to do. So how do we do that? First of all, we have to take that calling seriously. We have to recognize I'm a soldier of God's truth. 
You know, my dad likes to tell this story when he was in the army where he and this, his buddy were supposed to guard these gates all night long. And so my dad was standing there doing his duty, but his buddy remembered that he could meet his girlfriend in the dark somewhere. And that sounded more fun to him than standing at a gate all night. So zip, he was out of there. And my dad stood there by himself. Eventually, the uppity-up guys in the army figured out what had happened. And that man, uh, because he didn't do his duty, he got in big trouble. And I called my dad today to say, hey, what happened to him? He said, he spent two years in military prison. Not doing his duty, putting pleasure before duty. We can't put pleasure before duty when it comes to protecting the gospel. We can't put kindness, political correctness, tolerance, or complacency before doing our duty of protecting the gospel. We can't sneak away into the dark, away from truth, to meet up with things that become our friends instead of keeping our duty. We are God's soldiers. Guess where we stand? The gate of truth. And it's hard sometimes in today's world to stand for that. If we stop doing it, what will happen to truth? Stand for truth. 2 Timothy 2 tells us no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. When you receive Christ as your savior, guess what? You enlisted in God's army. And one of your duties is to protect the true gospel. Here's another way we can do that. Using our weapons, Paul says, of faith and a good conscience. In the darkest hours... A good soldier of God, what is he doing? Sharpening his sword of faith. How do we do that? We pray, we study, we get around other people who know truth. And then closely connected to our faith is a good conscience because strength and faith will bring strength in our conscience, which means walking a path of obedience. We have a resolve to obey our commander. And Paul says here, hey, that's why Hymenaeus and Alexander shipwrecked their faith. They didn't walk away from sin. They lost a good conscience. Theological errors are often rooted in moral failure. I'm going to say that again. Theological errors are often rooted in moral failure. And what that means is wrong living leads to wrong thinking. Wrong living leads to wrong thinking theologically. Thirdly, we have to know true doctrine and attack false doctrine with God's word. And guess what? I'm preaching to the choir here, or you guys wouldn't be here. You love God's word, and you're using it. And guess what? I bet God's got you on the front lines in many situations, and you're prepared to be there because you study God's word. This is our heart. Look at Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. We got to hate, and it's not cool to hate today. We don't hate people. 
we hate false ways that push against God's ways. Fourthly, we have to recognize those characteristics of false teaching and refuse to join the ranks of those that are involved in it. So don't you have lots of opportunities? You, you can listen to a spiritual teacher on the radio, online, you can see books, you can turn on the television, or maybe someone in the Christian community invites you to a new conference. Always be looking for the characteristics of a false teacher. Is there pride in the room? Are they telling you we have something new that no one else knows? Okay, that's a red flag. Is there some senseless babbling? Lots of speculation? Are questions unanswered? Are there vain discussions? Are the most important doctrinal truths being ignored? Is the teacher teachable? And most importantly, is the word of God being used? And is it being used correctly? If you see and hear red flags in those situations, report to your commander. <laughs> and don't join the ranks. Let me tell you again, which you know, let me tell you how much God loves us. We have a God who loves us so much, he doesn't want us to be lost in the dark. He makes it possible for us to know the truth in a world that's lost in lies. Here's what he did so we would know it. He sent his word. He sent his son. He sent his spirit so we can know truth so we can accept the gospel of grace, salvation through the sacrifice of a redeemer, of a savior, and we can know the savior. And because of that, you're here today in joy. You have purpose. Because of him, we are free from legalism and self-righteousness. We know the true love of our creator and each other. And we have the assurance that our father is holding us through all eternity, safe in his hands. This is the gospel of the glory of our blessed God. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you, praise you, praise you. You are the king of all. We recognize that and we thank you for loving us even though we don't deserve it and filling our days with so many good things. May we be strong soldiers of the truth for your church and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.